Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who's in a hot, sweltering Birmingham in England today. I am joined by Wookley, a financial professional and operations chief of a US-based private investment fund. Greg Sattel, author of the best-selling business book, Cascades, and Tyrion Fisher, a German political pundit. Today, we're going to look at the economic impact of the 2022 Russian invasion of Ukraine. This study boils up to, to boils down to this. Russia is in trouble, on the verge potentially of imploding. Let's take, you have nine myths. I want to bear down on three of them. Let's start with this one. Russia is making up for lost Western business and imports by replacing them with imports with from Asia. Why is that a myth and untrue? You know, Putin's trying to pretend that they can, you know, pivot east for, for energy sales, which of course is not true. And he's trying to pretend that all the companies that left, this historic 1,200 companies, multinational companies that left, aren't hurting them because they can substitute the imports from China. Well, not only have their imports into Russia, as we've seen, plummeted by more than 50%, but in fact, taking a look at China's own data, they have their customs data is public and it's pretty reliable. It's the, what they're sending into Russia from China has also plummeted more than 50%. You know, they like to create this myth of bellicose self-reliance, long, long Russian tradition of saying they invented electricity and, you know, and airplanes and automobiles and sliced bread. But the fact is they're not self-reliant is they, they are, you know, pulling about 25% of their GDP is is from imports. Wook, obviously Russia invaded Ukraine at the end of February this year. What was the first kind of economic shock which was dealt to, let's say, first off, the world economy because of this invasion and then specifically the Russian? I think I think it's important to make clear that inflationary pressures were already there before the war. I think a lot of the times people like to blame the war and blame the inflation on the war or the war on the inflation and whatnot. But if you really look back and what was actually causing inflation, I mean, there was a lot of pent up consumer demand with you know the confluence of supply side and demand side pressures. Just in time inventory and supply chain was already at capacity when COVID hit and then obviously COVID pandemic shut down. Poor food forecasting due to the shutdowns and behavior changes in food consumption. There was many, there was a whole list of factors, not to mention, of course, $2 trillion in stimulus in two months globally that went out to, to citizens. But there was also a lot of jobs that were, well, not lost, but many people. There were about 4 million people in the U.S. that was leaving their jobs per month. So at the end of the pandemic, there were about 40 million people that, that left their jobs and some have not come back. And that's why you're starting to see this wage pressure now. So right away when this actually hit, it didn't really impact the economy as much as it impacted Russia. So the ruble fell right away. And now once they started 
putting in their capital controls, the ruble was basically able to be artificially inflated back up to to pre-war levels and as well as increase. So that led people to think, oh, the Russian economy was actually doing well. But what it was actually was is that there was not only poor liquidity, you also had a single market maker in the state that was controlling the price. At the same time, all foreign, all companies that had foreign exchange or forex currencies, basically import-export companies in Russia, they were forced to convert 80% of their foreign exchange to rubles, creating literally a $400 billion demand of rubles overnight. So a lot of this was actually inflated. And then I think where we started to really see the issues was the financial markets around energy. And so with regards to energy, there's always a physical market and a financial market. So physical market is when trades are actually happening, consumption is actually taking place. But in the financial markets, Typically in the futures and forwards markets, you start seeing arbitrage investors coming in to look and see that there's going to be energy demand and there's not going to be enough energy to supply that demand. And so they'll take out futures contracts and some others will actually come in to make sure that they can take advantage of the price and put in futures contracts to hedge the price in itself. So this caused big sways in the energy. And if anybody was watching, energy was going up, oil especially, WTI and Brent was climbing up to 140 almost, if I'm not mistaken. And then it's fallen back down recently. And and that's basically not because just the supply was going out into into the economy, but it was also demand destruction that was taking place because of obviously the, the inflation that was happening as well. So, but obviously, Russia is very rich in in energy and in fossil fuels. It was isn't this in effect Putin's bet and his bit of leverage that that he has, let's say, over over the West that Russia is so resource rich that okay, our manufacturing sector might take a little bit of a hit or imports or exports might be down, but you guys still need our gas, you still need our oil. And, and then uh, and because of that, the Russian economy can be somewhat insulated against, let's say, some of the more pernicious effects of its uh, egregious invasion of Ukraine and the world's response. If I understood your question, you were basically stating, I think what you're getting at is, can you really sanction Russia where they have such large commodity exports? Is that what you were getting at? Yeah, that is obviously a great question and, and one that I think the world is learning from, especially all the allied countries that made the sanctions. Yes, Russia is an enormous exporter of energy as well as commodities. And I I think one can even argue that over the 40 years that we've had somewhat low inflation, part of that had to do with Russia being able to supply a very large amount of commodities at very cheap prices especially to Europe. The question I think really comes down to where the replacements and substitutes that the countries that really rely on Russian energy to to come into play. Obviously, the US is energy independent. They can produce their oil and they can produce their gas, especially after the fracking shale revolution took place. US became very energy independent. I think China can pose a problem if they were to start increasing imports of energy that would reduce the supply, the global supply of oil and gas, and that would increase basically the costs of, of oil and gas for the rest of the world. And so then the question comes in is, does a price cap actually make sense? Would a price cap, in fact, deter or complicate the issue? Now, price caps in history has never worked well. Anybody that looks back in the 70s, and they'll see that price caps were never effective. I think here, though, where you're creating almost like a buyer's cartel where you're carving out a certain number of the economy to state that you are eligible to get Russian oil, but you have to buy it at this price. And if you don't do that, then we'll sanction you with regards to basically trade or trade embargoes or tariffs that are that are implemented. And in that regard, I think that is a possibility that could work. But I think seeing that oil price is continuing to fall, that maybe this is not even necessary. Oil price has fallen significantly. We're almost at pre-war levels. So that means Russia is making even less money. And in that paper, what it does show is because of the increase in you know money supply that I was describing, M2 money supply specifically, that they're likely digging into their welfare fund to 
to be able to put that liquidity into their economy. And if this continues, eventually they're going to run out. I don't know if people knew, but Russia had about $650 billion in reserve. 350 of that was obviously frozen because of the sanctions. And so now if you're looking at possibly they've already run into about $70 billion that's drawn from that fund. And then recently there was a fin, the financial minister that, that I saw a letter from, which was talking about $82 billion, basically $5 trillion, 5 trillion rubles, which turns out to be about $82 billion US dollars that they're going to need for their next cycle for all their other departments and ministers to, ministries to continue operations. So if they continue to do this, they're eventually going to run out of money and, and Basically, I think at the end of the day, these whole, all these sanctions were really to try to pressure Russia to come to the table. How long that, that'll take, I think, is still the question. And if it's enough to motivate them, I've said this before, that it really takes multiple angles. There's not one silver bullet to this, but it really is ultimately getting everyone to the table to talk. And without the proper pressures, that's not going to happen. But to answer your question is... Is sanctioning or removing Russia completely from the global commodity markets, that'll be a problem for sure. I want to move on to you, Greg, because I know you don't have a lot of time with us. At the start of the invasion, what were the immediate impacts on the Ukrainian economy? In the beginning, everything just stopped. Uh, I mean, most of the people I know were in Kyiv and most of them, I mean, there was th- the traffic getting out of Kiev was something just terrible. But to be honest, I haven't really heard of anybody complaining about the economy. I, part of that is because there's a war going on. My my niece, well, my niece's child was was actually complaining to her father that you know, why can't we have strawberries or something? And my niece is quite young. My niece's child is quite young. And, and he said, of course, you know, there's a war on. We we can't get access to everything. There were gas shortages. There's shortages popping up here and there. But for the most part, I haven't been hearing people complaining. Of course, if you look at the economic numbers there, they look pretty bad. I know when I was there during the financial collapse in 2008 and 9 there was more a a feeling of of real panic than there seems to be now. I'm sure part of that is because they have bigger problems, but a, a lot of it as well is is that that there's a lot of 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 foreign aid, but surprisingly I don't get the feeling that there's an economic collapse in Ukraine. and But that's, of course, just the perceptions of, of people I know there. So in the last two weeks, Ukraine and Russia have come to an agreement to do with grain supplies, grain supplies out of Odessa through the Black Sea. Do you think that that shows us that maybe we're at the beginning of a negotiated endgame, the fact that in the middle of a hot war, Russia and Ukraine could come to agreement about exports. And or was this really outside pressure from the world? Because Ukraine is one of the world's largest exporters of grain. Many African countries are dependent on it. This was outside pressure. So was this really maybe the start of some kind of negotiated peace because of the the vitality, sorry, the, the vital importance of the Ukrainian grain shipments to the rest of the world? Or was it fundamentally a, another pressure on the two combatants? I, I don't think it was the start of any sort of rapprochement or, or negotiating. I think just the opposite is happening. I think the reason the Russians agreed to it is because they are pushing a narrative in a lot of places, especially in, in countries in Africa, lesser extent, Asia and Latin America, that they are, in fact, the good guys. And and it's the West that's stirring up trouble because for some reason the West wants to take Ukraine and they are the ones who are, in fact, under siege. And, and, and they're 
actually the good guys. So I think that's really why Russia did it to show, hey, look, we're, we've even opened this corridor so that you they can get grain out because we know that you are having issues with food security. But if you look at just yesterday, what happened in, crime, in Crimea, that is a really, really big deal. A major airfield air, air was blown up 200 kilometers, so about 120 miles south of the front line. And it happened in a place that is very, very popular with tourists. I mean, Crimea is, you know, think of, you know, you're, you're on Miami Beach enjoying it with your family and all of a sudden there's a massive explosion and a smoke plume. And today there was a hundred kilometer or a 60 mile long traffic jam to the Kerch Bridge trying to get out of, of Crimea. I don't think that we're going to see negotiations for, for some time. I think the Ukrainians think they're winning and I think they're going to push them all the way to the Kerch Bridge. Wook, I want to come back to you. Uh, Russia is resource rich, as I stated in my previous question. And we, we have in Europe a situation whereby not only were these, these pre-invasion on all European, if not world economies, but then we have at least the threat of Russia restricting gas supplies, let's say, to Germany, to Italy, two countries which are really heavily dependent. On, on those two and energy sectors coming actually from Russia. How are, let's say, Germany and Italy trying to store a winter whereby the industry will not be able to function because of, if not a lack of supply, most definitely rapid increases in energy in, in, in the energy market? I think that's probably the million dollar question that everybody's asking, even German politicians. I, I think there's a lot of headwinds. Europe itself will be facing a lot of headwinds. I, I think the, the region most at risk is, is, I would say, Germany. Germany being 25% of the EU's economy, they've benefited from extremely cheap energy from Russia. And so now you're looking at all their exports are basically, they're gonna have to pick, increase all their exports because the cost of energy is gonna increase significantly. So even though Germany's trying to get LNG and Freeport LNG is supposed to go, go at full capacity by October and they'll be able to import from there. The problem is, is the increase in cost and that cost is gonna to have to get turned somewhere. It's not only just that there's an increase in energy, Germany car manufacturers were also importing several materials from Ukraine, particularly around wire harnessing. So cars, believe it or not, have a lot of electrical circuits that require wiring. And so a lot of this, every single car manufacturer in Germany was using Ukrainian wire har wiring harnesses. And so those supply shocks are going to add up to additional costs. But the dollar itself is also increasing, which, is, which means for every European country, all imports are going to increase. So most people that understand commodity trading or forex trading, everything is pretty much tied to the dollar. And when the dollar increases, all your imports start increasing. So when you have in inputs that are costing more, then your output is going to have to adjust for those margins. And so I think the exports are going to be impacted. And so all in all, you're facing headwinds from not only, you know, the fragmentation that is happening within the with EU. You see, you just mentioned Italy with their significant amounts of debt. Their debt to GDP ratio is, is about 150%. And the problem with that is they're starting to have, you know, bond yield spreads that are much wider than what it would be for Germany. So Italy's debt is costing them more than it would for Germany to service their debt. And this is why the ECB is looking to increase, but they also now are bringing into this transmission mechanism mechanism where what it does is it's almost like quantitative easing and tightening at the same time. And the reason that ECB needs to do this is because if you if you have certain member states that are starting to get too widely fragmented, then the ECB's monetary policy becomes no longer effective. And so it's really important for them to keep these spreads low. 
I think overall, the two big countries that we're talking about, Germany and Italy, are heavily reliant on energy imports. And this is going to be a significant, I think this is going to be a significant hurdle that it's going to be difficult for them to get over. I do believe they will get over it, but I think it's going to take some time. I think it will probably likely be 2024 where you really see a normalization on energy into Europe. There are some indicators that Europe will frack. People that don't know that Europe has significant shale, actually. It's about 14 billion cubic meters of shale that sits in the ground. That is known, technically extractable. And so Germany, many countries actually ban this, but there is now talks of opening this up and actually starting to frack into certain areas so that they can release some some of the gas or pull out some of the gas for the local economies. And nobody wants to hear this, of course not, and certainly the Green Party in Germany doesn't want to hear this, but I think at this current time frame, everyone has to look at realistic op- options here. Of course, there's some step backs in the climate issues, but at the same time, the recession that is impending is probably going to be much more painful than trying to get some gas out of the ground. Sirin, you're in Berlin. Could you tell us how German politicians are actually talking about this whole crisis? For the first time in a long time, Germany has a trade deficit. Germany is suffering from inflation, as are all the countries of the world. And then there is this big pending crisis over energy supplies. Give us some sense of how the political conversation is actually being conducted in Berlin at the moment. Well, right now in Germany, of course, it's a summer break. So, you know, the politicians are sort of on a hiatus at the moment. But the ministers and, and the chancellor, of course, still still doing business. The the major discussion right now, as we're painted, is, you know, is there going to be enough gas? I think the way it's looking right now is there is going to be enough gas for this winter. There's some questions about next winter. So at the beginning of the crisis, the the storage capacity was about 10%, and the gas companies have been racing to fill up the tanks. And I I think there is somewhere between 70 80% capacity right now, which is quite high and and should be able to get us to the winter. Now, I'd like to point out that gas is not just energy. It's not just heating. It's all, it has a lot of industrial, everything that needs to be heated, you know, making glass, making, making metal things. And, and that's what German economy is based on, is making the thing that makes the thing that makes something that you have, right? It's, it's machinery. And making machines takes energy, takes heat. And, and most of that comes from natural gas. So it's, it's really not just the obvious electricity. Germany doesn't really have that big of a problem with electricity right now. That is not the issue. The issue is heating, the, the, the individual consumers you know, in their households, and, and the industry. And, and it's been made clear by the economic minister from the Green Party, Habeck, that it's not going to be possible to just say, okay, you know, we're going to heat our houses, but forget about the industry because then you know, people are going to not have jobs. So it's, there's got to be a balance. And I, I think the basic question is, is you know, ex-Russia, is there enough gas in the world to keep the rest of the world ex-Russia going? And uh, Wuk and I talked about this a, a couple of days ago, and, and there's a big question mark on that. And it's looking like Germany especially is going to have to actually cut, cut usage in, in all sorts of areas, also heating, also electricity, also in the industry. And uh, that's what the Minister of, of Economic Affairs and Climate Action is working on at the moment is exactly how to do this and the other aspect that, that's playing a major role is you know you know it's 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 easy for politicians to say we're going to save you we're going to we're going to give you the money you know we're going to take off the taxes from the energy make it cheaper or something like that but that's that that's counter counterproductive because if you make the gas cheaper if you make heating cheaper then people are going to use more of it so you know to some extent the individual consumer has to has to, to feel the bite as well. Otherwise, you're not going to reduce uh, consumption. So there's this in the background. But right now, what's going on is the economic liberal party, the FDP, is trying to figure out some way of adjusting taxes to make it, to make it better. And the Green Party is really fighting to to just get renewable energies up as quickly as possible to the 80% that's their goal. 
So that's it in a nutshell. Thank you. That was rather comprehensive, Tyrion. If you're in the audience, this is a recording of the podcast Mid-Atlantic. Mid-Atlantic has been my podcast, which I've done with various friends, pundits, politicians, diplomats for the last eight years. If you're in the audience, why don't you raise your hand and we'll call you up in the next 10 minutes. You can ask a question to Tyrion or Wook about how the Russian invasion of Ukraine has affected the Russian, the Ukrainian, or dare I say, the world economy. Wook, I want to come back to you. Explain to us how Russia's relationship with China economically has been impacted by its invasion of Ukraine. I think everybody thought that China would come to Russia's rescue, but it's clear that China really does what's best for China. And now I think part of that is because China is coming out of their own pandemic lockdowns, and that's a topic for a whole different topic that we could talk about in another room. But they're also having their property debt issues as well. I mean, across the board, there's sovereign debt crisis is is happening. If you look at you know, credit default swap uh, spreads across multiple countries, you start seeing that there has been a rapid velocity and increase in CDS spreads, five-year CDS spreads, that is. So there, there is debt issues across the board, but China is particularly interesting because of the velocity and the, the amount that they took in. So they're about 300% of their debt to GDP ratio, which is large. Does that mean China is going to fail? I don't think so. The, it, it, they'll be able to provide liquidity and I believe right now what they're going through is really kind of their GFC of what we went through, somewhat like their Lehman Brothers moment, where a lot of their developers are going to get bailed out. And so economically, I think China is having their own issue. And so while we think China is this monolith, a lot of their businesses are your small to medium-sized businesses that has import-export relationships with Russian businesses. And when you have Russian businesses that are starting to go out of business, your import exports are going to start collapsing in China as well. So you played that one part from Sonnenfeld where he was describing that China's exports into Russia has collapsed by 50%. That is true. On a monetary value, it's actually even more. It's like, I think, $5 billion in, in collapse of imports into, into Russia. So yeah, I think the question really is, is how far will China go? to really try to support Russia. I think they had some opportunities to buy very cheap oil at the same time. This benefited them because they were able to stock up on their reserves, but at the same time, it also looked like they were helping Russia. But when it comes to really other support, weapons and, or even sending in military themselves, this has not happened. And they, seems to, they seem to be pushing away from that. And I think Nancy Pelosi making that trip to Taiwan, while I understand it from an idealistic perspective, the pragmatic side of me states that you're really starting to, the timing of it, I think, was quite off. I think we need China to stay, to, to hold their resolve, to not help Russia as much so that Russia could finally come to the table and, and start negotiations. But I think if we start pushing China too much, they could start picking up LNG imports. LNG imports have been down 20% for China, as well as oil imports has been down 14%. So if they start picking that up, the global market prices for oil and gas will significantly increase. As I said, there's, you know, there's a physical market and a financial market for these commodities, as is with all commodities, actually. So, yeah, I think, I think it's not really clear what China's real role is at the moment, but I think what they're continuing to do is really what's best for themselves. Royfield, could I ask a quick question? Absolutely, go for it. Yeah, well, I think one of the counter arguments that the, the pro-Russian camp would would bring is that the yeah we're talking you, you've given us a whole bunch of factors about the Russian economy, but I, w I would argue that the the Russian economy isn't like a uh, a ripe or developed modern industrial economy. It, all these sanctions aren't going to hurt the normal Russians like they would, let's say, in, in the United States. I think the Russians have an image of themselves as being quite robust and, and rustic. And I think the argument can be made that really these sanctions are going to hit a part of the economy, the oligarchs. And the oligarchs are going to stay in line because, you know, eight of them ended up dead pretty quickly with their families dead. So they're not going to break ranks. And, and the rest, you know, the normal Russians aren't affected that much. Is, would you like to say something like that? 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I, I think there is significant truth to that because there is a large part of the provincial population in Russia that is somewhat removed from the economic system of your urban areas like, you know, St. Petersburg or Moscow or Rostat. And therein lies, I think, where where the West thought, oh, if you could just put in this amount of political or this type of political pressure with sanctions that the country's going to uprise and, and throw chaos and, and, and strike and, and be able to push Putin out. And I think that's this is where the West really misunderstood that a, a large part of Russians popula- Russia, Russia's population is, is that they live subs- kind of like subsistence lifestyle. So they have their own pension, but they don't have significant pay- payment they have to make. It's really just living month to month, and they're okay with that, it seems, and that's part of their society. I think the where this, the economic sanctions start to play is, though, when it starts to eat into the state budgets and you're starting to see that roads are no longer maintained or, or certain infrastructure is no longer maintained. And then you start realizing that Russia is somewhat becoming a vassal state to China or they're becoming, as some economists are now stating, that they're becoming China's gas station. And I don't think that would sit well with the Russian people. I think the Russian people, rightfully so, are pride, prideful. And, and I don't think this was ever meant to hurt Russians, but to see if there was an escalation of, of some type of pressure that would be able to come across to Kremlin and state that what you're doing is hurting your people, you need to stop. Little did we know, obviously, that Putin is in his own mind and he's, he wants to have a legacy that I think people are still trying to figure out. But to answer your question, it is true that there is almost like two countries within Russia. There is your normal population that can do without the, the economic inputs of what the, the actual cities are doing. And then there's the oligarchs and the, the larger cities that do rely on the global economy to, to power their own. And how much that weighs in into the, Putin's sphere of influence, that I think is yet to, to the question still. On the other hand, the argument or a strong argument for the sanctions would be, okay, we're not going to, we're not going to enforce a, a regime change with the sanctions, but we're going to, we're going to put a break on their, their war machine and they're not going to be able to produce the, the weapons and, and maybe even pay their soldiers. Now on the battlefield, we're seeing, you know, certain signs that look like, you know, they don't have as many precision weapons as they probably should. They, they seem to be using air-to-air missiles for air-to-ground roles, which seems to mean they don't have the right missiles for the job. So would you think that the, the sanctions are working in, in that area? And do you think they're working enough that you really give and you create a good chance? Yeah, that's a very good point. I, I think there is a long-term vision to the sanctions, is that if there is a weak in Russia, that maybe we can also... A certain amount of foreign policy with Russia would be to see if we can negotiate their, some of their denuclearization because they sit on a lot of nuclear bombs, right? And I, and I think this is where 
a lot of what Ivera Novellina was talking about, the central bank minister, was that this reverse industrialization will play into a weaker Russia. And I mean, you're, you're talking about even just advanced chips. And they're, they're not even advanced chips. Frequencies of 25 megahertz and under, or over are not allowed to be imported into Russia. So anything that is, is using some type of chip is somewhat, they're not going to be able to get. And this is probably why they were stealing washing machines and things like that, because if, believe it or not, washing machines has in, integrated circuits in them to control the timing and heating and, or whatnot and the pumps within the washer. And so these types of chips and integrated circuits are utilized for the smart weapons and advanced weaponry that you talk about. And I think this is where the long-term aspect of sanctions could take hold, is that if there is a, a very weakened Russia in the future and that there is potentially a regime change, Putin's not going to live forever. And if he were to naturally cycle out of, of office, maybe with the new president, that there could be talks it could be you know, many years down the road, but talks to potentially reduce some of their nuclear missiles. So I'll ask one more question about Russia and specifically the ruble before we move back on to Ukraine. The ruble is not a fiat currency anymore. At least that is what we are told that the Russian, that it's backed by, 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 by gold. But the, but the Russians still have to pay their debts in, in dollars. But was I right, Luke, that you actually said that the Russians have been printing money as a way to paper over the cracks with, with their economy? So did I hear you correctly on that? And is the fact that the ruble is not a fiat currency, does that go some way to explain its relative strength all the way through the conflict? Yeah, so the ruble is definitely artificially inflated, and that's main, mainly through capital controls. Right away, they increased right when the war happened, they increased their interest rates to 20%. And when every time that the Fed in the US increases interest rates, you see money moving from you know, foreign foreign currencies back into the dollar. And that's why you're seeing the dollar strength at the moment, because there's a lot of investors that are moving to take advantage of the interest rates. And so obviously, when the Russian central bank increased their interest rates to 20%, arbitrage investors took note of that, and they started going in to buy ruble. But more importantly, what was happening was that trade volume was limited. You only had a single market maker, which was the state banks, and they were the only ones that were actually transacting in, in rubles. So you basically could set the price if you're the single market maker, right? So that took also into effect. And I was explaining before, if you are an export-focused company within Russia, 80% of your external or Forex holdings was required to be converted into rubles. And this caused a significant amount of demand for ruble overnight that caused it to inflate. And they also put bans on, on you know, buying foreign exchange and it's set till September still for all individuals. Now they're starting to loosen that up because I think they need to have some type of liquidity that's happening, that's taking place. And this is actually what comes into the ruble for gas is because you need a lot of buyers of your ruble to actually continue to make it a floating rate. And that's what Elvero was trying to do, is stating that when Kremlin was stating that we were going to peg to gold, the ruble to gold, Elvero said, no, no, you can't do that. It would actually impact the economy even more severe than, than trying to keep it afloat. And so in order to keep it afloat, though, and to have a truly floating rate, you need a lot of buyers and sellers to find a nominal price for your ruble. And, and that wasn't happening. And it still is not happening. If you look at the ruble volume, it's quite low from even pre-war. Let's come back on, on, on to Ukraine right now. One of the largest sectors of the Ukrainian economy was grain exports. What other shocks have we seen to the Ukrainian economy. Greg painted a very vivid picture of the fact that, yes, there are some level of deprivations, but people understand that they're in a conflict right now, so they're making the best of it. But in what other ways can we maybe note the downturn? Well, about 40% of their business has actually ceased altogether. And it is predicted that their GDP will collapse to uh, collapse by 45 to 50%. Although the, the replanting of their agriculture seems to be back to 80%, but that's predominantly in the West. And the West was somewhat spared in, in the war. But 
I mean, if you look at just across the board as to the damage that's done, I mean, you're talking about housing that is in the billions, 30 to more roads that are in above 20 billion, I mean, airports and healthcare facilities, education, military infrastructure, you name it, it it's in the billions and billions of dollars. And, and some of the figures that are coming out is it's likely going to be a trillion dollars to rebuild Ukraine. But you're seeing right now 5 million people are, are jobless at the moment. And that's not including the refugees that have come out. And so it, it does look dire for Ukraine. I mean, they're, they're holding their interest rate at 25%. Their inflation is, is going to hit 30%. And their ability to borrow, which is surprising that they are able to borrow, even though their one-year bond spreads are about Yields are about 50% at the moment. So they're going to need a significant amount of help to get back on track. And the, the loans, the borrowing, etc., that Ukraine is actually getting, is that fundamentally emotional and situational because of the war? With the Ukrainian economy, let's say, in such a dire strait that in regular times, they would not be able to, to raise money on the foreign bond markets. Would that, would that be a fair thing to say? I would agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. And just before we go to our two people who come on stage to ask a question, you painted a really vivid picture of the fact that before this war, there were pressures on the world economy because of there was there was a, a lot of money sloshing around. Then there were supply side issues because 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 of COVID, etc. And then now we have this, which in terms of let's say immediately in Europe, one of the biggest impacts is just energy, the cheap supply of energy. Whatever happens with energy supply, it's not necessarily going to be cheap. If alone we're going to be able to get get it from Russia, it's going to massively impact so the the German and let's say the Italian economies. Is there anything else which we are missing here, which is maybe something which is un, you know, unheralded, which is actually having a large impact on Europe and the world because of the conflict? I would say food. Food supply is going to continue to ramp up as meaning food supply pressures. And that's not just because of the grain exports, it's also because of fertilizer. Fertilizer will cause ripple effects and that is going to increase food prices globally. And although there are some alternatives and some ways to get around that, but I think food is going to be a big issue. I think increases in overall commodities are going to be an issue. You know, eventually, if this is not settled, even noble gases that are used to create chips are going to be an issue, even though after 2014, many of the chip manufacturers stockpiled on noble gases such as neon. But I think over time, I believe the last figures were that they had only about six to 12 months of that. So as the longer this goes out and a predominantly a predominant or a larger amount of noble gases for, that are used for lithography as well as etching into microchips is actually coming out of Ukraine, that's going to hold some issues. I think there's there's not much positive that I, I guess I, I'm look I'm seeing at the moment, and I think that's somewhat clouded in the global inflation and possible recession that we're moving into. So I can't say that it's all because of the Ukraine war, but I, I will say that it is exacerbating it and amplifying it to a significant degree. Utterly, the last question before we move on to you, to Eugene, and to Soylent. Out of the, the G7 countries, which country is going to be most more resilient to the shocks and the pressures from, from the Ukraine war? I would say probably the Asian countries. Believe it or not, Japan is not having any inflation. Neither is China, actually, because they didn't really have significant stimulus that they printed out. But I would say there are countries that are somewhat removed from this. I think U.S. is going to continue to feel it mainly because of just supply chain issues and shocks that are rippling. Look, U.S. imports many things from all over the world. Anything that the Ukraine war, any country that the Ukraine war touches from a supply logistics and trade route perspective is going to have issues. And a lot of those inflation pressures are going to be exported out. So if you're a net exporter or if you're, ex if you're importing anything, you're going to import that inflation. And if you're an exporter, you're going to export that inflation as well. So utilize their oil. Soil and Europe next. My question really isn't about economics. It's about the internal stresses that Russia 
herself may face because all through the conversation we've realized i've realized that russia has uh, a limited amount of time to actually persecute this war and to reach a point where there is no going back, but which also allows her to become a member of the uh, a member of the uh, great uh, wider wider nations. My question uh, in that regard is: Could there possibly be an internal collapse and a division within this vast this last vast remaining empire? I must admit, before Wuke answers that, I'm always fascinated by what is the point when you get some level of economic, which then brings on political collapse. And to try and understand that, yes, there is a science to it, but fundamentally it's situational and, and, and it's art. But that's me as the historian. Wuke, as you as the economist, is it feasible for there to be a collapse of the Russian state, an economic collapse because of its military invasion of Ukraine. It is feasible. And I think ramping up the pressure, obviously anything is possible, even putting price caps and continuing to go after the war chest that anything that continues to fund the the war, I think would add additional pressure and accelerate the collapse. My worry, though, is that oftentimes when this happens, you end up bringing out someone much worse than the person you're t- trying to eliminate. And, and so part of me thinks that, yes, that ramping up pressure to, to force Russia's hand and come to the table and negotiate, you know, even though that that removes the agency of Ukraine and it's up to Ukraine to decide what their borders are going to be. And I, I fully acknowledge that. But I think that the amount of deaths that is happening on both sides is horrific and that eventually both sides do need to talk. And to going back to kind of before what we were talking about is is that I don't think that the weed exports or the grain exports is any clear sign. I think there is a little bit of positivity there, but until Putin and Zelensky are actually talking, I don't think there's any clear indication that there is going to be a negotiation. But if we start ramping up more sanctions and if we start moving into secondary sanctions to then start telling china and india you can no longer buy oil whatever that looks like even if we're willing we're willing to take on the inflationary pressures of energy and i get both arguments where people say we want to be on the right side of history i get the argument that we don't want to weaken ourselves that that is all said and done I think that what we're forgetting oftentimes is a lot of the times, the more we ramp up these sanctions, it's not necessarily Kremlin that suffers. It's the Russian population and and her citizens that ends up suffering. Not to also say that Ukraine is not suffering even more. And so I think there's this fine balance as to what really needs to take place. I am not a foreign policy expert, but I can argue both sides. I can also argue the fact that Ukraine, their population, they would rather die on their feet than live on their knees. I don't think anybody could take that away from them. Very last question from me. The the Yale report, which we played a, a snippet of at the, at the head of the show, kind of really graphically displayed the misapprehensions that we have about the robustness of the Russian economy, primarily because, you know, the ruble seems to be doing relatively well, whatever that actually truly means. Why do you think that there has been this underreporting of the struggles, the deprivations of the Russian economy because of sanctions since its invasion back in the end of February? This has not really been a narrative that the Western media has really played out. I remember I think three weeks in, when the when a lot of Western countries were either left or leaving Russia, I remember the mayor of Moscow did say that there's a hundred thousand people who were made unemployed literally overnight. But other than that, now. wow. Why do you think there's been this underreporting of the collapse of the Russian economy? I think. It- it started with Putin actually replacing a lot of the Rostat heads, which is their, it's their ministry for uh, stats that they have. And obviously when you start changing out economists and statisticians, you could start cherry picking the data that you want to publish. And they stopped publishing all data and they would only cherry pick what they wanted to actually publish. 
And that in itself says a lot. If your economy is doing so great, why are you not publishing data that you used to in history? I mean, China still publishes their data and it's quite reliable. So I think this is where the Western media picked up on some of this da these data points. And many in many of the rooms also looked at this, these data points and said that Russia is doing really well and this and that. But when you actually start doing cross-channel checks as to what Sonnenfeld did, you don't necessarily need the seller's data if you have the buyer's data. And if you have public buyer's data, you can start channel checking and doing due diligence as to what some of this data really means. And that's how the Yale team actually published this paper. I'd like to add a question there. Well, you know, we, we look at the, the Malcontent News Report, which is a close examination of the battlefield every day. And they have that economic section at the back. And recently I read the report here in the room and you were in the room, but you were down in the audience. There was the, you know, the Apple iPhone index for the ruble. So, you know, the ruble's trading at like 60 to the dollar right now. And and uh, I don't know if it, I, I imagine it's not just the malcontents that are doing this iPhone index, but the, the, to, to, to get a better estimate of what the actual value of the ruble is, sort of like the, uh, the Big Mac index, they, they have a refurbished iPhone 13 index, and uh, they're using that to compare then what the actual value of the ruble is. And, and using that index, a couple of days ago, it was like at 109 to the dollar. And then it was at 90, so it's fluctuating a little bit more wildly, but definitely in a di different price range than the, the official exchange rate. What, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think all non-durable goods that are imported into Russia are going to have significant price increases. And that is probably going to fluctuate mainly because most of this stuff is now traded on the on the black market, right? So that you have these parallel imports, but you have this kind of gray market area where a lot of these things are happening, especially like foreign exchange in itself and so there's a lot of gouging that's that's happening it seems and to your point iphone seems to be in anywhere from three thousand to five thousand dollars and i mean a toyota land cruiser it's said to be about two hundred seventy thousand dollars which it's really a seventy thousand dollar vehicle in the west so there's a lot of the significant inflation that's happening on non-durable goods that are imported but the, the rise in the ruble is actually really bad for Russia because it, it takes away from their convertibility of, of how much they're actually getting back. I often use this example, if, if you are converting, so say if you're paid in dollars and you live in Europe and you convert the dollars into Euro, and if the Euro is stronger, you're actually converting less, meaning the dollar is weaker to the Euro. If the dollar rises and is stronger than the euro and you convert it, you're, right now euro and dollar is parity. So for every $1 you're gonna get, for every $1 you're paid, you're converting it one for one to the euro. If, your dollar, if the dollar is 90 cents to the euro, then when you convert it, you're obviously only gonna get 90, cent, 90 cents in the euro. So herein lies the problem. If you have a stronger ruble compared to the dollar and most commodities are fixed to the dollar, you're actually making less money. And this was why they started reducing their interest rates drastically because they were actually running a, a deficit. And if you look in the one of the statistics that Rostat does publish is their oil revenues. And after the rise of the ruble around March, April, the, there was a decline in the ramp up to the oil, oil and gas revenues. And that was because that they had a stronger ruble. So it's not necessarily a good thing. It's actually bad. How important is the faltering property market in China, which I know has got nothing to do with the war in Ukraine, but how important is that as an economic indicator as to the strength, the resilience, or let's say the weakness of the Chinese economy going forward, would you say? I think what it's going to add to is China makes up, what, 20 nearly 30% of the total global output for manufacturing. So anytime that China runs into an issue, if China were to disappear today, let's just say that would probably cost the global GDP of every country two to 3%. That's how important China actually is. The problem with China, I think, and it really deals around the economic model of how a developing economy grows, you need to have high investments and high savings. High savings is actually tied in with the investments because you're saving into the bank that the bank then reloans out the money to. But this is a, we could 
go on uh, days for that. The, the problem, the immediate problem with China really deals with their consumption. They're, they're one of the least consuming countries. It's like, I believe it's actually below 50%. Some have actually put out it's 30% or so. And that, that means that China, from their global, uh, from their GDP perspective, that they're not consuming enough. And in order to continue to grow, because if you, if you have high consumption, you can continue to expand economically, internally that is. But if you don't have that, you still need to raise the debt on an ongoing basis to then continue to invest, to then continue to expand. And if they don't start raising the, the consumption by distributing the wealth or actually picking up their middle, middle income families to, to start actually consuming, the amount of debt that they're gonna take on is gonna be quite burdensome. So now they're con they'll continue to print money and they'll likely continue to manipulate their currency and continue to devalue it. And this is what they continue to do to be, to have you know labor competition across the global markets but over, eventually they're going to run into a wall where that the lack of consumption is going to start eating into their ability to actually navigate the economic waters of even the belt and road initiatives to their po foreign policies across into even europe and so I, I think the real test of china right now is not necessarily a demographics problem that everybody talks about it's really their consumption the lack of consumption is going to weigh into their growth significantly. But the, this whole issue around saving, having a lot of your citizens saving domestically, wasn't that said of Japan some 20, 30 years ago, that one of the things which held back its economy was exactly the same thing? So if I am remembering that correctly, what was the big difference between the Japanese economy of 1990, which had a high rate of people saving, as opposed to the Chinese economy now in 2022? I would say the difference there is that even though they were saving, they were still consuming. The, the disposable income that Japanese middle-income families had is much larger than what current Chinese middle-income middle families have. And so, of course, saving is good. And and so how this works out is if, if you're a developing economy, and most major economies have actually gone through this, is that you need to have high investment. You have a high investment threshold to build in your infrastructure, your logistics, your manufacturing, and your industry. And, Luke, and does, that, does that matter if that investment is external or internal, or you it, just need... It does Go. matter, actually, in the, in the very beginning. So america actually did this america went through this dutch and british actually invested into america but they realized that this was heavily tied to foreign policy issues that dutch and the british would have and that would impact their investments so what most countries started doing after that is and right or wrong is that you have two types of citizens in, in your country you have savers and you have consumers Consumers are your nor normal, ordinary citizens. Your savers are your rich, wealthy people that will put that money away and recirculate it into the economy. And right or wrong, what most countries do and most economies will take the money, the share of the money that goes to everybody, they actually allocate that to the savers through tax incentives, subsidies, or whatnot. And that money then gets picked into the investment part of, of, of the society, of the economy. And as this gap, between your investment needs to, to your saving starts to, to shrink or to start to collapse, you have to kind of think of a different model. And nobody in history has done this. Nobody has actually thought, okay, we're no longer needing to invest and expand. We're purely becoming a consumption society. What do we do next? And that's where why you still see these big wealth inequalities and gaps in between the rich and the poor is because nobody's actually figured out how to switch gears from that model. And so in China's case is that you have this ongoing investment that they continue to ratchet up because they say, you know, if, if you don't have high enough savings and high, you don't have enough, enough consumers at their stage of their economy because there's actually cycles within an economy, then you start saying, okay, then we need to increase debt so that we can start expanding economically through Belt and Road initiatives or whatever other programs that they do, like debt that they're giving out to frontier economies like Sri Lanka, right? So now they're running into an issue where a lot of the, the population, their wealth is actually tied to pro property and real estate. 
And once you start having a downturn in the property in real estate, your income level of consumers have just fallen. So they're no longer, they're actually going to consume less. So now China runs into the problem of, okay, we have to print more money, raise more debt. And that's what we've been seeing since 2016 is that the velocity of debt has been significant and unlike we've ever seen in history. It's not still, meaning the, the, the size of the debt is is not more than most other countries, but the velocity and the way that they're raising it is is quite significant. And I think that is going to start ramping up and hurting them because they just don't have the consumer base. And that's partly because they continue to manipulate currency, devaluing the currency so that they can stay wage competitive and stay the manufacturer of the world. The UK, its immediate outlook looks incredibly dire. The Bank of England has put up interest rates up now i I think it's to 1.25 percent which sounds like nothing but considering how historically interest rates have been for such a long time it has come as somewhat of a hike um there are issues to do with with brexit as to say we've lost anywhere between five to let's say nine percent of our potential economy because we have brexited then there are global supply chain issues, et cetera, et cetera, which the rest of the world is suffering from and we're suffering from as well. Would I be correct, Luke, in saying that the outlook for the UK is, economic outlook is probably the worst in the, the top seven world economies. That's what people in the UK are actually saying, that we have this energy squeeze, which everyone is happening throughout the world, but it's pretty acute in the UK. And all these other issues, that things are looking bleak and we're going to have a, a recession worse than the one in 2008. What what does your big whoop calculator say when it looks at the, the UK economy? I, I think the UK is pretty on par with Germany on the hurdles and headwinds that's ahead. Outside of Brexit, that's looming. Of course, there, the last figures that I've seen is there were nearly 500 companies that have left the UK to move on to either Frankfurt or Paris to U- European footing. And outside of all the tariffs and the lack of labor and the logistics issues that might arise out of that, I think the bigger issue for UK due to the interest rates is that Two million people actually in the UK have variable or tracker rates and 40% of the fixed rate mortgages are actually coming up this year. So, which means that the, there's going to be a reset in the interest rates. And so the, the mortgage market in the UK looks very differently because it's more short term focused than it is in say in Europe as well as in the US. And so anytime that the central bank increases rates, there is a very amplified effect that takes place in the UK. It's not like the kind of the long tail effects that you would see in the US or Europe. In the UK, it has really immediate impacts. And when you're starting to pay more for food and now more for housing because your mortgage rate just increased, as well as more for gas, you end up having less money, disposable income for your for your citizens. And that has this effect of not spending money and not spending money causes deflation and deflation causes you know joblessness. It's yeah, it, it doesn't look great. And so I think this is where the central banks has to start thinking, OK, if we start kicking up rates at this stage where we know a lot of the fixed rate mortgages are going to switch over is now the best time or should we wait a little longer? But then you have rising inflation, but we're starting to see peak in inflation. So I'm not a central banker, but if I was a central bank, I would be really revisiting the the interest rates as to how it impacts, because these are headwinds that are not quite at the level they are, meaning they're actually more amplified in Europe and in the UK than they are in the US. And so I think central bankers in in Europe as well as the UK has to be they have to be a little bit more careful in in the velocity and the impact that they're raising with rates. Weekly, thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic and providing with us an encyclopedic breadth of knowledge when it comes to Russian Russian economic outlook but also the Ukrainian and thank you for weighing into the economic outlook for Germany and Italy and the West in general. Also, we had on show our good friend, Tyrion Fisher, 
and of course a great friend of the podcast Greg Sattel who also joined us but had to nip off early who provided us with some great insights about the Ukrainian stoicism in face of the Russian invasion but also how the Ukrainians are looking at their economic outlook as well. Don't forget folks we always say this but left of centre politics is right thinking politics but we don't demonise our right leaning brothers and sisters we just try and win them over with the strength of our argument and at the heart of that is the fact that we believe in the commons the common space where people of different political persuasions can talk civilly and rationally to each other and to try and come to some level of an understanding that is the whole mission of the podcast mid-atlantic take care look after yourselves but after your loved ones even better want flexibility take yoga want flexibility with your health insurance check out united healthcare insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company they offer flexible budget-friendly medical dental and vision coverage that may be right for you more at uh1.com when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.